All right, let's uh, go ahead and begin with prayer. So let's uh, stand and ask the Lord's blessing on our study this evening. We thank Thee, our Lord, that Thou hast sent the Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us in the place of Christ's bodily presence with us, that He is a faithful teacher and guide into Thy truth. Open our minds and give to us understanding. But Lord, uh, even understanding Thy Word is not an end in itself if it doesn't lead to uh, loving thee, loving our neighbor, if it doesn't lead uh, to doing thy will, uh, then simply understanding thy word is falling short of the goal. So help us, our Lord, to uh, be those who are ready to not only hear, but to obey thee. In Jesus' name, amen. John 14, and our text this evening is verses 19 through 26. John 14, 19 through 26. I'll begin the reading with verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judah saith unto him, Not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So in this chapter, uh, the Lord Jesus has uh, told his disciples that he is about to leave and he is comforting them with certain truths. And the last truth that we just looked at uh, from the previous study was that he was going to send another comforter unto them in his place, and that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. We'll have uh, more to say about that in, uh, in a few minutes, but uh, that's uh, the one who comes in the place of Christ, so that when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, we do have the presence of the Lord Jesus with us. Uh, he may not be bodily present with us, but the Holy Spirit being with us is Jesus with us, and uh, that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching here. So that we don't have to feel, you know, Jesus isn't with us just because we can't see him and feel him and touch him. Uh, he is very much with us uh, in the word that is 
preached and taught, he is with us. Uh, in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, he's very much with us, though not bodily, but nevertheless very really. You see, bodily presence is not the, the only kind of presence that is real. Uh, the spiritual presence uh, is very, very real. And uh, the enemy would obviously have us to walk by sight and, and feelings uh, when, in fact, we need to walk in, uh, according to knowledge. That, uh, that's what God says, whether we feel, you know, God's presence with us or not. He's promised that the Holy Spirit is with us, and that's what we have to stand upon. And so let's heed the word of the Lord in that regard. So let's look at the new section uh, that is before us in John 14, 19. Jesus continues, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. What does the Lord Jesus mean, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more? What is this little while? What's he referring to? Well, after his resurrection, he was here upon the earth bodily for 40 more days before his ascension into heaven. So the unbelieving world, that's what he means by the world, uh, would see him no more. Uh, the unbelieving world would only see him for 40 days and, and see him no more uh, after that. They, uh, there would be no more bodily presence of the Lord Jesus for the world to see. But it's interesting that he says, but ye see me, speaking to the disciples, indicating that they would see him uh, even after his ascension. Uh, certainly during the 40 days that he was there that they would see him because he would appear in his glorified body to various of his disciples and followers. But uh, he's even referring to the fact that they would see him, see Jesus, even after his ascension into heaven. And so we ask uh, ourselves, how was that possible? How did uh, the disciples uh, see Jesus bodily when he was seated at the right hand of God in his body? And uh, that's not a place that he vacates and comes to the earth uh, in his body uh, subsequently. He, that's where he remains until the second coming, is at the right hand of God. So how is it that uh, we... Uh, we see the Lord Jesus, or that the disciples would see the Lord Jesus. Well, let me suggest that it's by faith that we see Jesus. It's likewise uh, by faith in Galatians 3.1 that they would see Jesus crucified. The, believers in Christ. It says in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Before whose eyes? He's speaking to the Galatians. So how has the Lord Jesus been set before them so that before their eyes, before the eyes of the uh, Galatians? Um, obviously, again, not visibly, not bodily, but by faith. And how was Jesus set before their eyes? Well, it was through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus was set before them, that they were able with spiritual eyes to behold the Lord Jesus. This is not um, a warrant for uh, building images of Christ and saying that, uh, uh, well, this image of Christ, to behold this image of Christ is to behold Christ. Uh, again, I think that certain, 
certain uh, churches may appeal to a verse like that and say, well, that's a warrant for building representations of Christ, um, images of Christ or pictures of Christ. And then to behold in the image or in the representation of Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, that's, uh, I think, very, very far from the truth. There's nothing there that ever in the New Testament indicates that we are to build an image of Christ or a picture of Christ and to behold Christ in that manner. Contrary to that, uh, actually the second commandment forbids it, does it not? Uh, in the larger catechism, question 109, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? And I'll just read a portion of this, the answer. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion. And notice what it says next. The making any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. So the second commandment forbids the making of an image um, as well as a picture uh, of Christ. And again, sadly, um, so many Christians have neglected, ignored, despised that portion of God's commandment um, and uh, do have all manner of pictures or movies, uh, whatever, that, that depict uh, Jesus Christ in a visible image, an actor representing Jesus Christ. These are all condemned uh, by the second commandment. Uh, we are not to uh, impose some type of a image, which is, again, any image or representation of Christ is a lie. Jesus didn't leave, leave behind any photograph or any image uh, for us to be able to, uh, to, to do so. Furthermore, um, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, and uh, he was, according to John 1.14, he was full of glory. Um, and uh, full of gl glory and uh, grace and truth. Um, we beheld his image, the image of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14 says. How do you portray in an image one who is full of glory? How can you limit it? How, it has to be a misrepresentation. Any any. Uh, image or picture or actor or whatever. Uh, they're only in their own minds trying to uh, portray who they think Jesus is. But it's a lie because God has not revealed that uh, to them. And so again, um, when Jesus says, the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, he's talking again by faith. We see him with spiritual eyes, not with, not with uh, our natural eyes, beholding him uh, in an image, a picture, a, a movie, or of some, something of that nature. Though Jesus will not be with his disciples bodily any longer, nevertheless, uh, his resurrection and ascension into heaven assures them, the disciples, and assures all of us who trust in Jesus Christ that there is a certain hope of eternal life. Jesus Christ is not in the tomb. Uh, he was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven is at the right hand of God from where he rules over all of his creation and over his church. Verse 20, Jesus continues, at that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I 
in you. What day? He says, at that day. Uh, again, I would su suggest that uh, most likely the day that he's referring to is his ascension into heaven, that they would have a more full and complete understanding of who Jesus uh, is and in his union with the Father and the Father's union with him as being one God uh, eternally united uh, in having the same divine nature, but yet two distinct persons. Um, and we include the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so it's referring, I believe, to that day um, of his ascension into heaven and then subsequently the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit ten days after he ascended into heaven on the 50th day. It was 40 days here upon the earth after his resurrection and 10 days later the, uh, the day of Pentecost uh, followed after that the Holy Spirit came and they were given a much greater understanding of uh, truths and as we'll see in the last verse that we cover tonight uh, that that would be one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to teach them all things. And they did understand, as a result of the giving of the Spirit, they did understand doctrines that they didn't previously understand, truths that they didn't understand as completely as they came to know them. And uh, that, was, uh, that was a part of the ministry of the Spirit. You see, when we study the Word of God, there is an intellectual side to the study of God's Word. I don't want to put aside that. Uh, if we're going to understand God's word, we do have to apply our minds to understanding it, uh, our human minds, our, our regenerated human minds that have been born again. We must take up the word of God, we must read it, and we must seek to understand the grammar, we must seek to understand the meaning of the words that are on the page in front of us, we must seek to understand the historical context in which uh, uh, those words come in order to have an understanding of God's word. And uh, I would say that a non-Christian scholar uh, can do that much, uh, can understand the history, can understand the meaning of the words, can understand the grammar, can understand those types of things. Uh, even a non-Christian can do that much. But there is an understanding that goes beyond that. That connects an understanding that comes by way of the Holy Spirit who lives and abides within the Christian. That connects all of Scripture as one unit, as one harmonious unit that reveals to us that it is indeed the inspired word of God, all of it is. And the Holy Spirit, in taking the word of God for the Christian, for the believer, uh, changes us from the inside out. Uh, that it doesn't do for a, an unbeliever who simply understands the words on the page or the grammar, or the historical context. That's where they can, that's as far as they can go. But the Holy Spirit in the Christian gives us a love for his word. Uh, gives us that understanding. This is all inspired of God. And again, the Holy Spirit takes God's word and applies it to our life and changes us. Verse 21 Jesus continues, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now Jesus, just a few verses earlier, in verse 15, which we looked at last week, says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Now, he says in verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Essentially saying the same thing that he said back in verse 15. 
and he's going to repeat what he just said in one of the verses that we'll look at in just a, a few minutes. But here we see this repetition of truth. Why the repetition? Um, I mean, it's only, God only needs to say something once for it to be true. He doesn't have to repeat himself in order to, for it to be true. So the fact that he repeats it, it's not for his good. It's not for his well-being. It's for our well-being that he repeats it because we're slow to learn. And we need to have things repeated to us. Uh, God doesn't apologize anywhere in his word for repeating things and going over the same truths over and over and over again. You remember, again, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, the fourth commandment, namely, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember. In other words, he's saying, I've told you already that there is a Sabbath day which was begun at creation. Now, it's continued up until the time of Moses. Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When we, when we say, and we may not say this out loud, but we may think it in our minds, but when we say, uh, maybe in preaching or teaching or something your parents may, may say, uh, yeah, I've already heard that. Okay, I already know that. Uh, let's just move on. I, I want to hear something new. Um, again, that, that's probably not uncommon for any of us, uh, but nevertheless, I think it only shows when we do that, it only shows us that we truly have not learned it. Because if we had truly learned what we're hearing again, maybe for the second, third, fourth, however many times it might be, if we truly learned it and it's true, we, want, we would want to hear it over and over and over again because we love it, because it is truth. We wouldn't despise it or we wouldn't say, let's move on to something new. We would say, yeah, I need to hear that many times. And again, uh, remember, this not only applies to preaching and teaching, but it applies to what your parents teach you. It applies to uh, what you hear from your employers. Uh, they go over and they may go over and you may in your inside say, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. But again, uh, don't resent the fact that you've heard something more than once. If you truly have learned it, you will not despise. You'll appreciate hearing it again if you truly learned it. It's only because you haven't learned it and don't appreciate it that you don't want to hear it over and over again. And so the fact that you are willing to receive it and hear it tells, would tell, should tell you uh, that you have learned it. <clears throat> it's not merely the one who has God's law, reads God's law and commandments, or even agrees and confesses that God's law and God's commandments are true, that loves Christ. What does Jesus say? Who is he who loves Christ, who loves me? The one who keeps, obeys his law, his commandments. We can have his law, we can read it in the morning, we can agree with it, but we know we love God and we know we love Christ when we want to do his will, when we want to obey him. That's what Jesus himself says. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And even when we fail, when we even blow it, when we sin, which we all do, how do we keep God's commandments? By repenting, by seeking his forgiveness, by 
running to his outstretched arms and the mercy of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's an evidence as well that we love Christ is that we don't remain in the sin that we've fallen into, but that we arise and we flee to the Lord Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, Now the end, or the goal, um, the word end there means goal, uh, the end of the commandment is love. The goal of the commandments is not obedience in and of itself. The end of the commandment is love. That's what Jesus said. The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, body and soul. And the second is like unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. Did Jesus ever teach in his ministry that we were finished with obeying God's law? Did Jesus ever teach us that we no longer needed to keep God's law? In the uh, Beatitudes, or or in the Sermon on the Mount, before giving the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, very clearly he says, right after the uh, Beatitudes, rather. He says uh, in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Notice what he says then in verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I just quoted from Matthew 22 verses 36 through 40 the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where does that commandment come from? It comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And Jesus said that was the great commandment that summarizes uh, all our duties to God are summarized under that. It doesn't mean that the summaries um, are finished and done away with all the other commandments, but that summarizes all of our duties to God, and then all of our duties to our neighbor, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, honor thy father and mother, all of those that deal with our neighbor are summarized in the second great commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's found in Leviticus 19.18. If we are done with the moral law of the Old Testament, if we're done with the Ten Commandments, Why does Jesus go to the Old Testament? And why do the apostles continually go to the Old Testament? To cite God's commandments that we are to follow. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.21, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that we're not uh, without... Uh, separated from and had that we're not uh, free from uh, obligation to follow God's law we're not any longer under the curse of God's law but we are again to follow God's law Paul says in 1st Corinthians 9 21 to them that are without law that is to the Gentiles as without law Notice what he says, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. We are under the law to Christ uh, in our obedience and our following of him. You know, in a family relationship, whether it's a parent-child relationship or a husband-wife relationship, it's very easy to say and utter the words, I love you. 
But what evidences our love? Is it the mere words? Not that we shouldn't utter the words. We should. But what is it that uh, gives meaning to those words? Well, when we show it, right? When we demonstrate it. When, again, we are willing to sacrifice ourselves and our own rights for one another. The words themselves become very empty if there's nothing there to evidence them. Um, they're, they're like a skeleton without any flesh. We give flesh to love by way of the deeds that we do for one another. The way we show, again, in our lawful deeds, in our, in our good deeds, in the way we sacrifice. How did Jesus show his love to us? God demonstrated his love toward us in that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't just say, I love you, I love you, I love you. He sent, he showed, he loved us by way of sending Jesus Christ to bear the curse of our sins that we might have everlasting life. The Father, in verse uh, 21, likewise, <clears throat> when he says, He that loveth me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. The Father and the Son, Jesus is basically saying here, the Father and the Son will shower that Christian that loves God with their love, the love of God the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and they will reveal themselves to that Christian by way of opening their mind and insight into the things of God, by way of their communion with the Lord, that there would be that intimacy and that familiarity, not a distance from God, but a closeness to the Lord. Uh, the Lord says that he who loves uh, the Father and the Son, that they will come and they will show to us their love by way of that intimacy and by way of opening our minds to his truth. It is true that we can't love God first. Um, he must love us first. That's what uh, John says in 1 John four nineteen. We love him. Why? because he first loved us. So God always initiates love. We respond. But interestingly, what the Lord is saying here in verse 21, when he initiates and we respond by way of love, then he responds to the love we offer to him. He responds by showering us with more uh, blessings, uh, by way of opening the intimacy and the communion with him and our minds to understand more of his truth. And then as he showers us with that, we then reciprocate. And we love him and we grow in our love. And so it goes back and forth. He loves us and we love him. He loves us and we love him. And there's just that kind of reciprocal relationship, but he initiates it. We would never be able to love God if God didn't first change our heart and give us the grace to be able to love him. But that's how it ought to be in the Christian life. A relationship of, of love where God shows his love for us and we respond by loving him and growing more in love with him. And, and then he responds by opening himself, as it were, uh, to greater intimacy and communion to us. And then we respond by way of loving him more and more. Verse 22, Judah saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Uh, says this is not Judas Iscariot, so this is another disciple of Jesus uh, that has the name Judas. 
Judas Iscariot is the one who betrays the Lord Jesus, but this is not him. Yeah, in other passages where it lists the disciples by name, and as you compare the lists of the, of the disciples, uh, this Judas is identified in uh, one of the lists uh, as Thaddeus, uh, and he is identified as well as Labias, Labias or Thaddeus. And so uh, this is uh, another Judas, but as Jesus says, or as John says, not Iscariot. But his question is an honest and is a sincere question. He's confused. Judas is confused by what Jesus has said uh, about not manifesting himself uh, to the world um, any longer uh, bodily uh, because he would be taken uh, from this world. And so Judas is, uh, is confused and asks for clarification. Interestingly, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't berate Judas for asking the question, even though perhaps Judas if he had a proper understanding of what Jesus had been teaching for some time now and trying to, to have his, his disciples understand that he was leaving, he was going to be crucified, he was going to be raised, he was going to, be, uh, uh, he was going to ascend into heaven. If he, they had truly understood what Jesus was saying for some period of time already up to this point, the question perhaps would not have been asked. But... What I find interesting is that it was still an honest question. Uh, he wasn't uh, setting a trap for Jesus. Uh, he wanted to know, why aren't you going to be manifesting yourself to the world? Why only to us? Jesus doesn't, as I said, berate him. Jesus doesn't make fun of his question. Doesn't uh, uh, treat him as if he's a fool. Uh, because it's an honest question, Jesus gives an honest answer, and so should we. Um, we who are parents, we are grandparents, ministers, when we receive honest questions, then uh, likewise, again, maybe uh, most of the people uh, in the congregation or most in the family would already know the answer to the question, but that doesn't mean that it's not a, a good question. It doesn't mean that you can't ask it and God willing that, that you'll never receive from, from your uh, eldership uh, any kind of berating for asking an honest question. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. It's by asking honest questions and listening to the answers that are, again, Lord willing, agreeable to what God has given to us in his word. The only kinds of questions that Jesus uh, did not respond to, and he would ask a question, and it was, he would be given a question, and then he would respond by giving them a question, is when they weren't asking honest questions. Uh, then he would answer a question with a question instead of answering their question. Uh, that, again, was because they were trying to entrap him. Uh, they were trying to ensnare him in a question. But this question that Judas asks, I think, assumes the fact when he says, why, Lord um, will you not be manifesting yourself to the world? Uh, it assumes, again, a particular perspective on what Christ was going to do. That is, they believed, the disciples even at this point believed, not that he was going to die, even though he told them that was what was going to happen, not that he was going to be raised from the dead, not that he was going to ascend into heaven, they still believed he was going to set up his kingdom here upon the earth, right then and there, reign from Jerusalem upon the throne of David. And that's why 
Judas asked the question, how is it you're not going to be manifesting yourself to the world? We thought you were going to set up your kingdom of rule here upon earth over the world. When in fact he was going to set up his throne in heaven and to reign over the world from a heavenly throne at the right hand of God. So that's the reason for the question that Judas asked. That's the, that's the uh, assumption that he's working from. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, and I'll read verse 24 as well, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So, putting both of these verses together, this is the answer to the question which Judas has just asked. Why aren't you going to manifest yourself to the world and why only to us? Uh, in effect, Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself to those who love me. And how do they demonstrate they love me? Once again, here's repetition. What's the evidence? Those who keep my word. Those who keep my commandments. That's what the Lord is saying. So essentially Jesus repeats once again what he said earlier in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, what he just said in verse 21. And now he goes over the same truth. The coming of the Father and the Son to make their abode with those who love Jesus is not a bodily coming of Jesus to them, but a spiritual coming of Jesus to them, as we talked about earlier. When he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in the place of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit uh, is, again, um, the vicar of Christ. Vicar is the title that the Pope has taken unto himself. The vicar of Christ. The one who comes in the place of Christ here upon the earth. And uh, the Pope, again, uh, sees himself, and as does the, the Church of Rome, sees the Pope as the... As the um, ruler uh, over the church uh, here upon the earth, but the that and that's a false claim. Um, he is not that at all. Um, the true vicar uh, of Christ is the one that Christ sent in his place. Right, that's the Holy Spirit. He said, "I send unto you another Comforter." That's who Jesus sent to be in his place is the Holy Spirit. The word vicarious, we theologically uh, speak of vicarious atonement. Vicarious means in the place of. Vicar means in the place of. So a vicarious atonement is a, a sacrifice that Jesus makes in the place of sinners, his people, his elect. Uh, that's vicarious. And again, the, the idea that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in his place uh, indicates that that is a vicarious coming of Christ spiritually in the Holy Spirit. We have the presence, and I emphasize it again, we have the presence of Jesus with us because the Holy Spirit abides with us. He abides with us and dwells within us. Now, just the contrary or opposite of what he said in verse 23, he says in verse 24, he that loveth me not. See, in verse 23, talking about he who loves me, he will keep my words. But verse 24, he flips it on its head. He that loveth me not 
keepeth not my saying. So how do we know people don't love Jesus, even if they say they do? They don't keep his words. They don't care to keep his commandments. Um, they don't love his will, God's will. They love their will more than God's will. That's Again, I'm just you know, saying what Jesus says here. It's not my doctrine. I'm just teaching what Jesus says here. Very important uh, test for us all, is it not? Uh, for us to, again, examine ourselves. Let's never be afraid to examine our hearts. Examination of these truths is one of the ways that uh, we uh, learn to uh, grow uh, and see for falling short in, in, in uh, certain areas of our life and uh, to rectify that, to repent where we need to repent, to grow. These kinds of examine, examinations, um, that's what uh, we're taught. Uh, examine yourself uh, to see if you're in the faith. Uh, that's, that's the actual teaching of uh, the apostles. And so when Jesus says at the end of verse 24, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Again, understand from that and what he says in verse 23, at the end of verse 23, where he talks about the, uh, that my Father will love the one who loves me and, and will come unto him and make our abode with him. This, this language that is being used uh, here, the Father and the Son, it really condemns all Unitarian uh, religions um, who believe that, that uh, the Father alone is God. Uh, this uh, condemns uh, that because the Father... Uh, has sent the Son, uh, the Father and the Son are one, Jesus says, um, and, and there is that union between the Father and the Son, a personal um, a union, uh, um, having the same divine nature, and yet uh, distinct. And so, uh, this language, as I said, condemns uh, all religions that uh, basically are Unitarian, uh, not Trinitarian. Unitarian being that there is, there is only one God and one person in the Godhead. Right? And uh, that, that's condemned. Judaism is condemned. Uh, Islam is condemned. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Um, or, uh, that as well is condemned and any other Unitarian uh, religion is condemned uh, by the language that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John about uh, again the Father and the Son being one and yet in union with one another verse 25 Jesus says these things have I spoken unto you being yet present with you. So the words of Jesus that he has taught them have been given to them while he is bodily present with them, but he's inferring once again that he will be departing uh, bodily from them and that he will send another comforter, another teacher in his place, namely the Holy Spirit, which we conclude on in verse 26 tonight. Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And so again, I, I emphasize the Holy Spirit is the true vicar of Christ, the one who is sent in the place of Christ. Holy Spirit uh, here is not an impersonal force, uh, not an impersonal influence, 
like the wind or like just merely uh, an impersonal energy or force of that nature, but is the third person of the Godhead. And uh, it's made very clear here in verse 26. It says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he, the word there, he, is a masculine pronoun, he, not the neuter pronoun, it. It's not a force. The Holy Spirit's not a force, imp something uh, impersonal. But it is a he. Uh, a he is a personal pronoun. He is a person. The Holy Spirit is. As the Father is a person. As the Lord Jesus, as the Son of God is a person. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is a person. And he it is that will... Jesus says, basically supernaturally, bring to mind all that Jesus taught the disciples and will give them further revelation and understanding of all the truth that they need to know in order to teach it and in order to include it in this Holy Scripture by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How was it that we have, for example, well, Old Testament and the New Testament, but speaking of the apostles, how is it that we have the New Testament revelation through the apostles? It's by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here promises to give to his apostles that they would be able to, to um, teach others as well as transcribe it, write it down uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, in the pages to preserve it for all future generations that we might have recorded for us what Jesus communicated to uh, his apostles. And we have a very faithful, uh, inspired, infallible, incapable of error. If this could err in any way, it would, it would basically say God could err uh, because God cannot err it's impossible for God to err, then what he inspires to his disciples and apostles is impossible of any error as well. And so uh, we have, again, the infallible uh, word of God because the Holy Spirit was supernaturally given to the apostles in a very specific and distinct way so that nothing that Jesus would have us know by way of doctrine, by way of worship, by way of church government, by way of discipline in the church, or by way of ethical, moral commands or instruction for our personal lives, for our family lives, for our church life, for our national lives. Nothing that we need to glorify God is omitted, but is found in Scripture. We don't have to go searching for it anywhere else. It is all included for us in God's Word. We don't have to have visions now. God has included that in His Word. We don't have to have new revelations given to us of these truths. God has already given that truth to us in His Word. We just need to be good students of what he has revealed to us. That's the sad part about so many, um, I think, well-intentioned Christians, but sadly, uh, they're looking for new revelation from God. When God has completed and given to us all of his revelation already, they just need to be familiar with it. They just need to know and understand it. Not go searching for it elsewhere. That's how, again, I believe the enemy deceives. It's because so often they go searching for it and they end up finding not, not the truth, but they end up finding all kinds of error because they have departed from the truth. But uh, I would close by saying this. Though there is a very specific reference to the work of the Holy Spirit supernaturally in coming to the apostles to preserve 
the doctrine, worship, government, uh, to preserve the, the ethical and moral commands of God that we need to live uh, in order to please him um, and that are recorded in his word. Uh, there is also a general reference to um, the work of the Holy Spirit in all of our lives, that the Holy Spirit comes to give us understanding, to enlighten our minds. Uh, we, we don't see any of it. Uh, we are blind uh, to all truth until the Holy Spirit gives us sight uh, by way of regeneration. Uh, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're, we're blind in Adam. But we see in Christ uh, because the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes spiritually. And we see the gospel and our need for Jesus Christ. And we cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus and upon his gospel of salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But then uh, after conversion, after that point, the Holy Spirit must continually come to us. Not, uh, we don't forsake the academic part of studying God's word. We still need to try to understand the words that are on the page. We still need to under, try to understand the grammatical setting. We still need to understand uh, the historical context in which it was written, the cultural context. That's all, again, uh, found very often in good sound commentaries uh, that we might use uh, to study God's word, um, who have done so much of the work for us that we don't have to reinvent the wheel on, on that and uh, thank God for that. But that's not, that's, that's not all there is. Uh, we do need the Holy Spirit because it is a spiritual book inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that we gain, again, insight beyond simply the mere understanding of the words to where we make connection with, uh, with the Lord himself and, uh, to understand him with greater insight and understand, to understand more uh, by way of how one passage relates to another passage in God's word, because that's how we interpret God's, Bible, uh, God's word, uh, is that scripture interprets scripture, and the Holy Spirit is used uh, in our minds to be able to help us connect and to go to other places in God's word that help us understand the place that we're reading from. And the Holy Spirit gives us love uh, for God and for his word, love for our neighbor as we understand, as we open his word. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that draws us through his word unto himself and, and that causes us to respond as he this is a love letter to us, his people. And the Holy Spirit is the one who causes that love uh, in our own hearts to respond in turn to love him as we read his love letter to us. And as we respond to his love letter to us in love, he responds again, as we said earlier in the Bible study, by showering blessings of love upon us and drawing us ever closer to him. And then we, in turn, as we receive those blessings, grow in greater degrees of love for him. And so it goes on and on and on. And that's, again, beyond the mere academic, intellectual part of understanding God's word that we have to get beyond if we are to truly... Uh, understand, not just intellectually, but with our whole being, understand what God is saying in his word. And may the Lord give us that uh, desire, and may he fulfill that desire within us. Stand in prayer as we conclude. We thank thee, our Lord, for the Holy Spirit that has been given unto us and has been given in place of the Lord Jesus and as the Lord Jesus taught his disciples when he was here bodily with them, so the Holy Spirit likewise teaches us in the place of Jesus. 
and yet it is the presence of the Lord Jesus with us. Lord, we thank Thee that we can personally know Thee, uh, that this is that we're not talking about some type of a um, distant foreign relationship. We're talking here about a loving relationship between us and Thee, Thee and us. Lord, we pray that uh, each of us uh, would grow uh, in that type of a loving relationship with thee and that we would understand that that love is demonstrated in keeping thy commandments and in obeying thee, not in disregarding, not acting as though thy commandments uh, have have been extinguished and, and that we're no longer under any uh, obligation at all to keep thy commandments. Certainly, again, we thank thee. We're not under the curse of the law, but we are under uh, the uh, duty uh, to walk in thy commandments, in thy love, and in thy light. Hear our prayers, Lord, and we thank thee for thy presence with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.